Good afternoon, listeners of Medical Education's podcast series. I'm Kevin Eva again, the editor-in-chief of the journal, and today, March 16th, I'm speaking with Brownie Anderson, the Senior Director of Educational Programs for the Association of American Medical Colleges, and more importantly for our current purposes, the editor of the Really Good Stuff series that has been part of medical education twice a year since around 1999. Thanks, Brownie, for not only being part of this, but for having led that series for so long. It's my pleasure, Kevin, and I would just comment that we actually started with it being just once a year, and because we had such a volume and so many good things to publish that the editors at the time said, let's try to do this twice a year and see if we can manage it. So that was an exciting transition that probably happened, oh, seven or eight years ago. That is definitely consistent with what we're seeing nowadays with the constant interest in it and the increasing number of submissions and and greater competition with people trying to get into the section. Absolutely. I hadn't realized until we started this conversation how long I had been doing it, but it really makes me reflect on some of the things that I've seen over the years. Not only the increase in the number of submissions, but I think one of the things that's been most exciting is to see the range of topics and the truly creative ways that schools around the world are considering how to educate physicians for practice. Things like a focus on students and pedagogy has yielded submissions on cognition and trying to measure professionalism and a real increase in the number of submissions in uh, graduate medical education, postgraduate medical education, as well as lifelong learning and the practicing physician. So that's one of the things that I think has been exciting to see over the years. Yeah, it's such an important section for the journal and one of the ways that we try to make sure that we're helping people from around the globe really disseminate their good ideas, as the name implies, and share success stories, share struggles, share just their experiences in a way that doesn't necessarily align with the general research paper format that's more commonly presented across the field. Were you part of the initial discussion then about the focus of really good stuff and what it was trying to accomplish? Yes, I was. In fact, there was a publication that was referred to at one point as a sister publication of really good stuff, which was in the U.S. journal Academic Medicine, and it was a section called In Progress, and it was published in May each year, and really good stuff was modeled after In Progress to try to get to a broader audience than academic medicine serves and to get at the international ideas that are represented currently in both medical education and in really good stuff. And so we really took the same model that we used for In Progress, same number of words, similar format, and then the editors of academic medicine decided to discontinue in progress and that made I think it was at that point that we decided to go with twice a year for really good stuff because there wasn't any venue to do exactly what you've described an opportunity for people who weren't doing heavy-duty research with statistical analyses but rather presenting an idea and 
sharing the challenges that they had as well as the successes. Over that time, have you seen much systematic change in the submissions that are coming in? Or is it just that they're increasing in number? Or can you put your finger on how things might be different now relative to when it started? Well, I think there are a couple of things that are different. One is we definitely have more countries represented. The initial years, the submissions were dominated almost to exclusion by UK, US, and Canadian, as well as Australian submissions. Native English speakers were submitting, and we really weren't getting very broad representation from countries around the world. And so that has changed significantly and has been a wonderful thing to see. And I dare say that the submissions themselves have improved. People really understand, I think, what it is we're trying to present here and work hard to be sure that their submissions are innovative in their contexts, are presenting something that someone could take and try to do at their own institution. So I've seen a change in the quality as well as the quantity, but also, as I mentioned before, in the topics. Initially, there was a lot that seemed to focus on if we change the way we teach, if we change the pedagogy, what will be the impact on the students? And now there's a much greater breadth of topics dealing with the culture of the institution, the well-being of the student, more challenging topics around ethics, which are really important to see how that sort of a topic is presented in the context of a different culture from a different country. Issues around faculty development, curriculum management. So some important topics that are challenging to present in 500 words or less, but our authors do it very well. Absolutely. That actually leads me quite nicely to one of the other things I wanted to talk about with you today, which is that we've had many discussions over the last few months or years and were prompted to reconsider it again this past fall with Kieran Walsh's letter to the journal about really good stuff and the challenge that the field faces as a whole with feeling pressure to put forward the proof that what they're doing is successful and to try to convey to individuals that they are scholarly and having great earth-shattering ideas that are uniformly beneficial and it doesn't seem to fit with reality in many ways and so we have talked about trying to evolve the scope of really good stuff and I wonder if I could get you to share some of those ideas with the readers. Absolutely. I think this is one of the most exciting developments and to pick up on what you were just talking about Kevin, I think one of the challenges that we've seen as the submissions have grown and the topics have changed is precisely that over time we were getting people trying to show how they were most innovative and most creative when in fact what has been most valuable in some of the submissions that never reach publication have been those that 
present the challenges that they encountered. And as Dr. Walsh said in his letter, you know, we spend so much time celebrating how wonderful we are in everything that worked. Wouldn't it be great to learn as well from things that we thought were really good stuff and great ideas and turned out not to be? And what did we learn from that? Why were they not successful? And so with your encouragement and the support of the editorial board, we will be changing the structure of the submissions so that we will be asking people to tell us what they were trying to do, to tell us what happened, and then what the lessons were that they learned from this experience so that we will be getting things that were wildly successful as well as hopefully people will be encouraged to submit things that didn't work. You know, a lot of journals, people don't think that the non-successful project would be considered or looked at, but that's exactly what we're trying to encourage people to share, their oopses and not so really good stuff that they thought was really good stuff when they started. I guess we should be explicit given how frequently it's come up whenever you or I have talked with people about this evolution. The intent isn't to publish really bad stuff. Right. The, the opposite that everybody jumps to, but rather to publish really good stuff that maybe just didn't play out the way people expected and is informative as a result. Yes, and I think one of the things that this will allow, and it's one of the challenges that we've faced with really good stuff, is that often someone has done something which in the context of their situation, either they're in a resource-challenged area or there's a cultural issue which presents a challenge, they may have accomplished something which is truly innovative for them, but because it's been done in the U.S. or published about in the U.K., the reviewers may not view it as well as they might in a different setting. And by allowing people to tell us what lessons they've learned from really good stuff, it allows them to present it in their context, make it relevant, and I think will allow people, I hope, to adapt things to their own setting more easily because they'll be able to look at the lessons learned. And the lessons learned are from things that were successful as well as occasionally those things that were less successful. Right. I think we're going to leave the details of what's required in this particular submission for readers to look up in the May issue in the editorial as well as in the author guidelines, but perhaps we should end with some guidance from you about how people can maximize their likelihood of success of getting published in this section because I think the change that we're proposing is really a challenge to authors. I'm anticipating that making the work more easily adaptable by readers puts a heavy onus on the authors to help people understand really at a deep scholarly level what lessons should be taken away from activities as opposed to following what might be an easier cookie cutter format in some ways where you run an educational activity, collect some satisfaction ratings and then try to make an argument for its success. Do you have any insights based on your decade of reviewing these things that might be worth sharing with potential authors to really good stuff? Well, I don't want to make any promises because the reviewers ultimately help me make the decision about what goes in. But I think it's important if you have an idea 
to see if someone has done something like it before, if it's been published in the literature, and if there's some things you could build on from something in the literature. We don't want a lot of references, but acknowledging something that is similar or that you're building on is always a good idea. I think having something that is focused is very important. Sometimes there is the germ of a really good idea in the submissions but the authors have presented far too many disparate facts and components of this really good idea that it's impossible to find that kernel of really good stuff and so the submission is rejected because it's not easy enough to understand what they tried to do and what they accomplished. I think as you suggested Kevin it is going to be challenging for the authors to reflect on their submissions and what they learned from the process, from the outcomes of their really good idea. And I don't have as much advice since I haven't seen any of the submissions come in yet with this, but to really reflect on what would you like to have known when you started this? How would you explain this to someone? What are the key things that you would share with them about your really good idea? Just as we're trying to promote reflection among our students and our practicing physicians, we may be modeling that with really good stuff. That's a really nice note to end on. I think that I'll maybe just summarize by reminding people that the next version of Really Good Stuff is to be published in May, this coming month, 2011. The author guidelines will be updated for the revised version on the website very shortly, and there's an editorial that Brownie and I have put into the May issue that hopefully makes some of this explicit as well. And so I'm sure I speak for both Brownie and myself when I say that we'd love to hear from all the listeners and all the potential writers out there and share your good ideas, and we'd love to see them published in the journal. Thanks, Bernie, again for your wonderful leadership and support of this important section. I look forward to many years of continuing to work with you on it. My pleasure, Kevin, and I hope for the same. Thank you. <laughs>